So good evening, and welcome to the Herbert W. Vaughn Lecture on America's Founding Principles. I'm Don Drakeman, and I have the honor of being the Chairman of the Advisory Council of the James Madison Program in American Ideals. The James Madison Program is a relatively young organization, but it has, in a few short years, uh, become a major force on campus for the discussion, debate, and illumination of American ideals and institutions. This is due in no small respect to the contribution of its founding associate director, uh, Dr. Shauna Sagru, who joins us tonight from Florida. She has been away. She left us to become a professor, and we're thrilled to have her back. So, Shauna, welcome and thank you. It is my special honor tonight to be able to introduce to you the man whose vision and whose generosity has provided us with the opportunity to experience this evening's exceptional lecture, Herbert W. Vaughan himself. Herbert Wiley Vaughan has been an extraordinarily dedicated member of the Advisory Council of the James Madison Program since its founding, and his devotion to the program has encompassed not only this annual lecture series, but the Herbert and Ann Vaughan Visiting Fellowship as well, both of which have contributed to the understanding of America's founding principles, to the growth and vitality of the James Madison program, and to the intellectual life of Princeton University. We Princetonians should be especially grateful to Wiley, who is himself a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Law School. He enjoyed a long and distinguished career at the bar with the firm now known as Wilmer, Cutler, Pickering, Hale, and Dorr. His distinctions extend beyond having had a very successful commercial and industrial real estate practice. He is a member of the American Law Institute, a fellow of the Massachusetts Historical Society, and a former visiting fellow of New College, Oxford. He has served as chairman of the governing board of the Trustees of Reservations, the oldest land conservation trust in the United States, and he is active in the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. It's my pleasure to introduce a wise and great friend of the James Madison program, Wiley Vaughn. Thank you, John, for your very generous introduction. I'm very pleased to be able to be present at this inaugural of the Herbert W. Vaughan Lecture on America's Founding Principles. I've been involved with the Madison program since its inception, and am delighted with its success under the leadership of Robbie George. And with the arrangement that the lecture will be under the administration of the Madison program. I'm also very pleased that Judge Michael McConnell has agreed to be the inaugural lecturer. The endowment document requires that each Vaughan lecturer shall begin with the following statement read aloud to the audience. This is a requirement of the endowment document. I, Herbert W. Vaughan, have endowed this lecture at Princeton University to promote and advance understanding of the founding principles 
and core doctrines of American constitutionalism. What Alexander Hamilton said to the Americans of his day remains true for the Americans of every generation. It seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. In my judgment, the Constitution of the United States is the greatest practical achievement of political science. It is a testament to the extraordinary gifts of creativity, prudence, and high-mindedness possessed by the founders of our nation. May you be guided and inspired by their genius as you meet the challenges of the present day. Keith Whittington. I'm the acting director of the James Madison program uh, for the year, and uh, we're very fortunate for this inaugural lecture in the Vaughn Lecture Series uh, to be able to welcome a very distinguished speaker, um, Judge Michael uh, McConnell, the circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Um, he joined that court in January 2003. Um, he also uh, continues to teach part-time uh, at the law school at the University of Utah. Um, now, Judge McConnell uh, graduated from Michigan State uh, University, um, as well as the University of Chicago Law School, um, before uh, becoming a teacher uh, in law. Uh, he served as a law clerk uh, to Chief Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States uh, Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, as well as for Associate Justice uh, William Brennan on the United States Supreme Court, and is quite possibly the only judge appointed to the bench uh, by the Bush administration with those uh, credentials uh, in, his, in his background. Um, also served in, in other posts uh, in the government and has argued a number of cases uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. For many years, uh, he taught uh, at the University of Chicago Law School before moving uh, to the University of Utah Law School, um, a well-known scholar uh, working in particular um, on questions of constitutional law relating to uh, freedom of religion, uh, segregation, desegregation, and constitutional theory. Um, and I welcome tonight uh, Judge McConnell. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction, and especially for the invitation to be here at Princeton and at the Madison program to, to speak. This is a real uh, a thrill for me, and especially I feel so honored uh, to have been asked uh, by um, Mr. Vaughn, especially to uh, be the inaugural uh, lecturer in uh, what I'm confident will be a, uh, a very distinguished series. Uh, uh, so uh, thank you 
uh, Mr. Vaughn, for your generosity in establishing this program and for the chance uh, to me to, to, to kick this off. Um, I also will be chastened by the statement uh, written, uh, which Mr. Vaughn uh, uh, read to us at the beginning, which I understand every speak will be uh, read in advance of every uh, speaker's presentation. I would only suggest maybe you should supply it to the speakers in advance, lest, <laughs> uh, lest we go off uh, unintentionally on a wrong track. Uh, I, I've taken as my uh, subject for this evening uh, virtue, religion, and republicanism uh, at the founding. Uh, essentially, this talk is going to be a response to a very widespread understanding of the foundation of our constitutional order and, indeed, of any liberal democratic uh, uh, system, something I think that rises to the level of a conventional wisdom. And it goes something like this, that uh, that creation of a liberal democratic order requires or presupposes a secularization of civic culture. That there is something uh, problematic about religious faith, especially in the public arena, uh, but in general in, in the public culture. That, and that this secularization is embodied in our Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. That it's embodied in the idea of the separation of church and state which while protecting the private practice of religion from uh, uh, the dangers of government, also, it is said, uh, protects government from the divisive and irrational powers of religion. Um, it's necessary, according to this view, to base public policy and public affairs on the neutral ground of reason rather than on the superstitious way of uh, a superstitious sway of priests and bishops or the fulmination of fundamentalists. Now, this idea of the founding, the secularization of public culture, did not mean that religion was to be suppressed, but it did mean that it was to be relegated to the private sphere of home and church, uh, where it would be strongly protected under the free exercise clause, but also stripped of any public role. Uh, I think that an accurate look at the founding shows that it was really quite different from this and in many ways more interesting, and that's my subject uh, uh, for tonight. Um, at the time of our founding, uh, establishment of religion, meaning a public, official uh, 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 religious doctrine supported by the state in both material and symbolic ways, was a very real option. Uh, in fact, uh, at the time, in the 1780s, at the time of adoption of our Constitution, uh, about half of the states had some kind of an establishment of religion, and some of the ones that didn't seriously considered adopting it. There were debates in major states like Virginia, Maryland, Georgia, Delaware, New Jersey, about creating some kind of an establishment of religion, and many uh, a patriotic, Republican, by the way, I'll use the word Republican a lot tonight, that small r, uh, Republican, uh, uh, no relation except accidental to the modern Republican Party, just as I also use the word liberal, small l, no relation except accidentally to modern uh, uh, liberalism. But So established, uh, there were many patriotic Republican Americans, Washington, Adams, Patrick Henry, John Marshall among them, who supported some form of establishment of religion as part of the creation of this uh, of the new uh, Republican 
America. And I'm going to begin by talking about what the arguments in favor of establishment of religion were. We don't talk about this very much because we're so insistent that we're against establishment, but it's important to know why what the reasons were, not because I expect you to be persuaded by them. I'm not <coughs> persuaded by them. Ultimately, I think that they are not correct arguments. But unless we understand what the argument for establishment was, it's very difficult for, under, for us to understand the force and the meaning of the decision to engage in disestablishment or non-establishment. Right? We simply have sort of forgotten what the argument was all about. Uh, uh, there was a th basically a three-step argument in favor of the establishment of religion, and it went like this. The first step in the argument is that Republican government requires an extraordinary degree of public virtue in order to survive and succeed. The second step is that religion is necessary, or at least highly conducive, to the formation of public virtue. And the third step is that government support is necessary, or at least valuable, to support religion. So those are the three steps. Now today, the opposition to religious establishment is based largely on disagreement with the first two steps, although you sometimes hear reference to the third. Um, but the first, the idea that republics in liberal free societies require an extraordinary degree of public virtue uh, is, uh, I think, not widely believed. Uh, at a popular level, freedom, a free society, means the freedom to do what we want. And it seems very odd to 21st century Americans to say that in a republic, which is a type of free society, we're especially constrained to act virtuously. At a more philosophical level, Rawlsian liberalism teaches us that the state should be the neutral, the liberal state should be neutral, between different conceptions of the good. Now, virtue represents one view of the good life, and a liberal regime, therefore, under this Rawlsian conception of neutrality, cannot make any particular understanding of virtue its official orthodoxy, and hence it can't produce, it can't promote virtue or presuppose or depend upon it. And so the first argument that republicanism uh, depends upon an extraordinary degree of public virtue is, I think, not commonly believed uh, uh, today. Uh, the second step is also not commonly believed, and that's that religion is necessary for the inculcation of public virtue. Uh, I mean, we all know people who are virtuous without being religious. And even more disturbingly, the opposite. We know people who are conspicuously religious without seeming to be very virtuous. Indeed, you can even see some of them on TV. <laughs> In a more extreme form, it's, it's even commonly believed that religion is deleterious to liberal democratic society. Why? Because it's prone, it is said, to uh, extremism and intolerance. Right? It's better to base our judgments on things like science and reason. This, I think, is a very common uh, view today. At the founding, however, uh, even at the time that we were engaged in the decision not to establish or to disestablish religion, there was widespread agreement about steps one and two. It was actually the third step, the government support step, that was the principal theoretical ground for disestablishment. 
Let's look at each of these steps in a little bit more detail. Step one is the relationship between republicanism and public virtue. Gordon Wood, probably recognized as the greatest intellectual historian of our founding uh, uh, era, and, uh, and certainly no uh, religious fanatic, um, if he's religious at all, which I doubt, um, tells us, and I quote, the 18th century mind was thoroughly convinced that a popularly based government, quote, cannot be supported without virtue. Um, I have less than an hour tonight, so I can't begin to share the wealth of evidence. All you have to do is to dip into the political uh, literature of this period to be impressed by how widespread this a view of the connection between virtue and republicanism uh, was. Uh, Washington, for example, in his farewell address said, it is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. Adams wrote, uh, religion and virtue are the only foundations of republicanism and of all free government. Uh, now, I should drop a footnote here about the definition. What do they mean by virtue? Because this is one of the many terms which over the 200 some odd years since the founding has tended to change its connotation, if not its, uh, its uh, denotation. Today, the word virtue, we don't use it very often, and, we, and when we do, it has a kind of prissy quality to it. You know, virtue sort of to behave the way your grandmother might want you to. Its, it's principal meaning has to do with sexual chastity. Right? That is not what 18th century Americans meant by virtue. Um, with apologies to feminist sensibilities, the word virtue comes from the Latin root meaning manly. Right? And, and, what, and what, virtu what they referred to as virtue were the, were the strong virtues of, of courage, public spiritedness, subordination of the self to the common good, obedience to the laws, willingness to sacrifice. I think the best definition of virtue, we'd probably call it public spiritedness, but, but the self-sacrifice for the common good, that was the core of what they meant uh, uh, by virtue. Uh, and here's the theory for the connection between republicanism and virtue. The theory was that in monarchies or any other form of authoritarian government, people can be forced to obey the law and to do the right thing through punishments or through the apparatus of coercion police, prisons, uh, executions, standing armies, and so forth. But republics are different. Republicanism was not just a theory about selecting officials through elections, but it was about what it, was, what it meant to be a free person. It meant obedience to the law through the freely given consent of the governed, not through coercion from above. Here's Gordon Wood explaining it again, and I quote, in a monarchy, each man's desire to do what was right in his own eyes could be restrained by fear or force. In a republic, however, each man must somehow be persuaded to submerge his personal wants to the greater good of the whole. Right? In order to, to both uphold the public good, but also to have it done voluntarily, not through coercion, requires that the citizenry have public virtue. That's what it was all about. And this meant that republic, republics, more than any other regimes, required public virtue. Republican societies had to concern themselves with the character and upbringing of their citizens. Well, that brings us to the second step, uh, which is the connection between public virtue and religion. 
Uh, this may be even more controversial than the first. Uh, George Washington, again, from his farewell address, uh, a long quote, but it just just packed with interesting ideas, so let me re read it to you. Uh, Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Note that he's talking about political prosperity here. He's not talking about pleasing God. He's not talking about getting into the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about personal salvation or any of those Anything. He's talking about political prosperity, which is to say the public good, right? Um, and of all the dispositions and habits which lead to that, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Religion and morality, the firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, right? A public connection between religion and the duties of citizens. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. This, I think, is very interesting. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Right, so what Washington, Washington was a bit of an elitist, and by the way, not a very religious man. Uh, uh, he was pious, he attended church, he contributed to church, but uh, uh, he was a blasphemer. Uh, from from all, all indications, not a person of any strong personal uh, re, uh, religious faith. Nonetheless, uh, he believed that religion was the firmest prop. Now, he was aware that maybe for people who had a really extraordinary education and mind of a peculiar sort, maybe there might be some kind of philosophical substitute for religion. I think here he's thinking primarily of the philosophical work of the Earl of Shaftesbury, who was the 18th century British, most, uh, British thinker most associated with the idea of trying to create morality on, on non-religious lines. Uh, but in any event, he didn't really think it would work very well. For most people, most of the time, uh, religion is going to be necessary for morality. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville writing a little bit more than a generation later, uh, I quote Tocqueville because I, and along with many others, think that he's probably the most perceptive observer of the American political and cultural scene. Tocqueville wrote in response to some of the French revolutionaries uh, who attacked religion in the name of liberation, he wrote, quote, despotism may be able to do without faith, but freedom cannot. Religion is much more needed in the republic they advocate than in the monarchy they attack, and in democratic republics most of all. How could society escape destruction if, when political ties are relaxed, moral ties are not tightened? And what can be done with a people master of itself if it is not subject to God. Or, since I'm at Princeton, I can't resist quoting John Witherspoon, the, uh, the uh, uh, head of this institution, and, and James Madison's professor of moral theology when he was a student at Princeton. Uh, Witherspoon uh, wrote, and, and I believe Madison may very well have heard these words, uh, to promote religion is the best and most effectual way of making a virtuous and regular people. Now, 
Looking back at the late 18th century, it's somewhat easy to see why people said this so often. I mean, what were the other institutions for the inculcation of public virtue? There weren't any public schools. Very few people attended college. There was no television or radio to spread ideas or to influence uh, uh, conduct. Churches were the principal and almost the only institutions for the inculcation of public virtue. Um, ministers, along with lawyers and doctors, were the only learned profession. They were practically the only people who had the opportunity to study and expound ideas having to do with right and wrong and, and, and morality. Um, it's estimated that about 80% of the published political pamphlets in the United States in the 1770s were reprints of sermons. Isn't that interesting? 80% of the political pamphlets were reprints of sermons. One historian, Harry Stout, has estimated that New England churchgoers would have heard over 15,000 hours of sermons over a lifetime. Now, to put that number into perspective, in a four-year college education, you'll attend about 1,500 hours of lectures. So churches at that time were indeed the principal place where people learned and where, where ideas of virtue and right and wrong were inculcated. Now, I'm principally talking about history tonight, but I do invite you to ask yourselves the question of whether this is plausible today. Uh, today, we live in a very much different world than they did. But are there any institutions today other than churches, synagogues, and the like, which are have as their mission the inculcation, the discussion of uh, of right and wrong, where people go regularly, weekly, and sometimes more often to discuss loving your neighbor and so forth. Uh, what are the institutions other than religion for the inculcation of virtue uh, uh, today? Uh, and there's a wealth of social science data. I have to admit, I'm not particularly persuaded by all of it. I'm not a, an empirically minded person, and I don't, the studies seem to me to be, you know, I don't know, but they're suggestive. And there are numerous social science studies that show that religious participation does seem to correlate with a number of indications of socially responsible behavior, such as among teenagers, lower drug use, crime, cheating, and adolescent sex. Among adults, higher levels of voting and civic participation and a greater uh, propensity to engage in uh, charitable work with one's time. Uh, so uh, maybe there's something... Uh, uh, to this. Um, when I was inducted as a, as a federal judge a little over a year and a half ago, um, I went to one of the a training sessions at which a number of new federal judges uh, uh, went and did a visit at a federal penitentiary. Uh, this, uh, this prison, in, which is in California, was selected precisely because it was, it was considered to be one of the better prisons in terms of its educational programs, vocational training, vocational opportunities, and substance abuse programs. So a pretty good prison in terms of this, this sort of thing. And after we toured it, we had a meeting with the warden in which we could ask questions, and a number of questions were asked. But one of them, one of my fellow new judges, asked the warden, are there any programs or any indication about what works in terms of recidivism? Now, I, recidivism is, is whether somebody once released from prison at the end of their term go commit new crimes and, and just go back. And, and so uh, uh, he, and by the way, this war, this was a hard bitten. This is not a, 
This is not a romantic guy. This was his. He was. This is the fifth prison he had been warden of. He was brought in precisely because this prison was beginning to experience some gang activity, and he was brought in to, you know, to to, to bring things under order. He was. Uh, anyway, he paused for a minute at this question, and he said, and this is almost a direct quote. I was really struck by this. The only objective, measurable connection between what happens in prison and the recidivism rate, he said, is a religious conversion experience. For those inmates, you can tell the difference. Now, I don't recite these things for you because I'm trying to get you to agree or to, uh, uh, or, or to necessarily even to believe it, but just to understand why the argument that religion, that there's a connection between religion and public virtue might seem to be plausible. Um, why it's not maybe as far-fetched as it uh, um, might at first blush uh, uh, appear to be. Let me move on to step three, which is, uh, which is the government support uh, uh, step. If republics require public virtue, and if religion is required for, or at least conducive to public, to, uh, to, to public virtue, it seemed to follow that the government ought to do something to encourage and support uh, religion. Now, this should not seem like such a surprising step, unlike the first two. I mean, after all, what do we do when we want to encourage something or we want to influence the way people behave? We create a program and spend money uh, uh, on it. Uh, as I walked across the Princeton afternoon on this beautiful fall, uh, uh, fall day, I noticed that the banners about alcohol awareness programs, and you're supposed to get your applications in by... I forget, you know, October 10th or whatever. I assume that this means they're giving grants to students for, to, to, for money to spend on, I assume, not drinking, although this, <laughs> the, the banner was not entirely explicit on this. Uh, uh, you know, so, you know, what do we do when we want to discourage smoking? We have anti-smoking campaigns. When we want to do something about AIDS, we have AIDS awareness campaigns. Uh, 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 my kids tell me that in their public school, the uh, sunum bonum of public virtue is to engage in recycling. Uh, I, I suspect that no 17th century Puritan child was so assiduously endued with the virtues of the Christian gospel as uh, modern public school students are with the need to engage in recycling. So you know, so so this is not this is a familiar uh, uh, idea, right? And and the specific form that it took, uh, in in both in the four states counting Vermont where it was actually put into place, and also in the other places where it was considered, uh, was that everyone was required to provide some financial support for a church. In some cases, they were required to go if there was any, quoting now from the Massachusetts Constitution, upon which they could conscientiously attend, they would have to go. You couldn't just do brunch, right? Uh, um, and, but you were allowed to choose among a certain range of acceptable religions that were thought to promote public virtue, right? And, and different places had a different range. In Massachusetts, which was relatively narrow, that meant quote, Protestant ministers of piety and morality. And there were some debates as to whether Unitarians counted for that purpose. The proposal in Virginia extended to all Christians 
uh, and, uh, and, 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 and in South Carolina, they had a five, five articles of faith that had to be satisfied, but none of them very doctrinal, uh, most of them having to do with, uh, with whether you were going to uh, in support the government and not engage in revolution. Um, in any event, within a certain range of churches, then you would get to choose. And what's more, the, these were These were not only were they multiple establishments, meaning uh, not one church but a, a, a family of churches, uh, but in, they were also tolerant establishments. They all explicitly provided that there could be no punishments or penalties for the practice of religion in your own denomination, right? So, so while the obligation was to support a publicly approved, one of the publicly approved family of churches, you were perfectly free to, uh, uh, to, to be something, to be a Buddhist, although of course, you know, they never heard of that, but uh, 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 some of the states made it specific reference to the uh, indige beliefs of the indigenous populations, for example. Uh, uh, that was okay. Um, now, four states, counting Vermont, actually had such a system, uh, and uh, two other states authorized such a system by law but never actually implemented it, and four others debated it but didn't adopt it. This is a very, and I'm talking about in the 1780s, the same decade that our First Amendment was, was, uh, was adopted. Now, gradually, the four states that had the system repealed the last one to go was Massachusetts, which repealed its system in 1833. Um, it's this process, each state first deciding not to have such a system and then the ones that having it dismantling it, was the real disestablishment decision uh, in America. The adoption of our establishment clause only meant that the federal government would not have a national church and would indeed not interfere with the various state churches. It did not accomplish disestablishment anywhere. The real disestablishment decision, and in order to understand what disestablishment was all about and the real arguments over disestablishment, you have to look at each of the states and why each of them made this decision. But I think it's fair to say that you know, by 1833, it was the unanimous opinion of the people of, the, of all of the states of the Union that establishment of religion was a bad idea. And so far as I can tell, Americans have never looked back on that, that that has become a firm and consensus position as part of the American constitutional ideal. The question is why? Um, there are a number of answers to this. Uh, uh, there was an attempt, especially on the part of the Federalists, the defenders of the new Constitution, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to deal, they had to deal with the problem because they were setting up a new republic, and yet, if you look at the Constitution, there are no institutions for the inculcation of public virtue. And many people thought that was a huge flaw in the Constitution, and the Federalists, the defenders of the Constitution, had to deal with that. Uh, what was their answer? And they came up with an answer which has a certain degree of, uh, of power to it. They, they argued for what they called a new science of politics, which would reduce, although not eliminate, the need for reliance upon uh, a public virtue. Uh, they were modeling their new science of politics on the then new science of economics, largely created by Adam Smith, whose book The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. The idea of Smithian economics was uh, to try to create institutions for the economy 
which would channel self-interest in the public good. Right? Rather, than, rather than relying upon people to do things out of the goodness of their hearts, and also rather than relying upon the government to make everything work out, right? Smith argued that if you set up certain frameworks of free enterprise, that it that uh, that it would act, that people acting in their own enlightened self-interest would produce and contribute to the common good. He said, I mean, probably the most famous statement from from the book: uh, "It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love." And the new science of politics that is expounded by the Federalists especially, and most, most especially uh, uh, Madison and Hamilton and the Federalist Papers, was an attempt to create a, a structure of political institutions that would perform a similar function, that instead of relying upon so much public virtue, rather we would rely upon the structure of institutions, especially an extended union and checks and balances uh, to, sub, to, to, to reduce the, uh, the need for a, a public uh, virtue. Um, so Madison wrote, uh, uh, he wrote, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest, the interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. The great security against a gradual concentration of the several powers in the same department consists in giving to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachment of the others. We're not relying upon their virtue, right, or their self-restraint, relying upon their self-interest in clash with one another under properly designed institutions to produce the same uh, result. Madison calls this, quote, the policy of supplying by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives. In other words, you're not going to have enough virtue. We have to find some uh, uh, substitute uh, uh, for this. Um, now, I'd like to stress that this was not an anti-religious or anti-virtue move. Right? Having virtue and having religion was a good thing. This was a supplement in case, uh, uh, in case it, it, it fell short. Um, and a careful reading of the Federalist and of other writings of the period reveals that they did not really believe that their new science of politics was a, would eliminate the need for public virtue, but only reduce it. So Madison at the Virginia Ratifying Convention said, and I quote, is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. In Federalist 55, he wrote, as there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, I love the way he writes, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. It's not talking about virtue, right? Republican government presupposes the existence of these qualities in a higher degree than any other form. Right? So even Madison, even in, his art, in, the, in, in the Federalist Papers where he presents this new science of politics, even he still adheres to the old idea that republicanism really does depend upon virtue. And the most profound critique of the proposed Constitution by the Anti-Federalists in 1787 to 88 
was that it failed to make any provision for the sustenance of public virtue. Indeed, that the commercial republic that it created and its attendant luxury and equality and lack of opportunity for popular participation in public affairs would tend to destroy the very public virtue on which it was dependent. It was a telling critique. Well, what about the second step, uh, public virtue divorced from religion? Uh, there is some slight hint in some of the writings of the, uh, the anti-federalists that maybe there's some, there's some other things than, than religion that might help. Uh, localism, juries, militias were all local, local institutions, and their idea was that if there are opportunities for participating in the, in, at a, in a, in a, in a really face-to-face -face way in affairs of the common good, that that would help train citizens to be more virtuous, that is, to be, make more sacrifices for the, uh, for the public good. Uh, but for most anti-federalists, the church would have been listed right among these republican institutions. Uh, uh, in a largely Christian society, it was virtually inconceivable for most to imagine that virtue could be sustained on any other basis than a religious basis. To, to do that would require creation of alternative institutions for the inculcation of virtue, and it's, it's hard to imagine what they would be. I mean, what are we going to do? Found chapters of the Whig Cleosophic Society all through the small towns of America? Uh, remember Washington. Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Which brings us to the third step, which is, has to do with government support for religion. And this, it turns out, was the step upon which disestablishment uh, uh, succeeded. It was this, this was the point in which the argument against the, the establishment was most powerful. And it was being made, this is so important to realize, it was being made not by uh, secular enlightenment types for the most part. There were a few of those, Jefferson, for example, very unusual person, rather outside the mainstream of his day. But the shock troops of disestablishment were the most intensely religious and evangelical elements of American society, especially the Baptists, but also New Light Presbyterians, uh, Congregationalists who had been affected by the Great Awakening, uh, Quakers, uh, some radical Methodists. Uh, the, the itinerant preachers were, and, and, and big, and, 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 and uh, camp revivalists were in the forefront of disestablishment. Right? That's, and, and this is important to realize because some people think that we have these two clauses, free exercise and establishment, and free exercise is sort of pro-religion and establishment is sort of anti-religion and their intention with one another. Uh, historically, that's complete nonsense. The same people supported both clauses, and it was the most intensely religious elements of, of American society that supported uh, both. In fact, it was it was the what we would now call liberal Protestant or Unitarian ministers tended to be among the supporters of an establishment. Uh, uh, and so, what were their arguments? Why were these most intensely evangelical uh, uh, people against an establishment of religion, against government support for religion? Well, their first and most important argument was based upon the religious idea of freedom of conscience. That's the right 
indeed the duty of every person to worship God in the manner dictated by his own conscience and conviction. Uh, now, this idea goes back at least to St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, but it became very prominent for the first time in Western history with the Re Protestant Reformation, where one of the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation was, God alone is Lord of the conscience. Um, each believer, the Protestant reformers said, has unmediated access to the divine through prayer and scripture. In sharp contrast to the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestants taught that we do not have to rely upon priests or the teaching authority of the church. That is what makes Protestants different from Catholics, more so than arguments about transubstantiation and a lot of other stuff like that. It is the unmediated access of the believer to the divine, not needing the instrumentality of the church uh, uh, in between. Uh, now, it wasn't recognized at first, but the same Protestant logic actually applies no less to the state than it does to the pope. Um, an establishment of religion came to be seen by the radical Protestants of America as useless because only genuine faith, a genuine voluntary submission to the will of God is true religion. One advocate of disestablishment, a Baptist uh, preacher in Massachusetts, put it this way, quote, nothing can be true religion but a voluntary obedience under God's revealed will. It doesn't do any good to use government force to try to uh, uh, support religion because you don't get genuine religion. And in fact, it's worse than useless. It's idolatrous because an establishment of religion sets up some authority other than the Bible as the religious authority. Neither the Pope in Rome nor the legislature in Trenton has any authority to dictate on matters of religion. That was the position. Um, and you see this even in some of the more secular sources. It, it creeps in. Jefferson, for example, when he wrote the Bill for Establishing Religious Freedom, which is the Disestablishment Bill of Virginia, it was adopted in 1786, wrote in, it begins, the very beginning of the bill for disestablishing religion in Virginia is, and I quote, well aware that almighty God hath created the mind free, that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. And then it goes on to condemn an establishment of religion. It's interesting, isn't it? Jefferson's disestablishment bill begins with a theological proposition. Almighty God hath created the mind free. That's how he begins. And then proceeds to appeal to the teachings of the, quote, holy author of our religion. Right? Uh, the, uh, the, the, the basis here in the religious doctrine of freedom of conscience is self-evident. Well, the second major argument that persuaded uh, uh, the, the uh, religious forces against establishment was based upon church autonomy. Um, this is a break from the Anglican tradition. We, we sometimes forget what an established church was, was really like, but remember that in the, that the Church of England, which was for them the established church, uh, the king was the head of the church. Uh, 
the government determined the doctrines of the church. The King James Bible was authorized by the king and was adopted by an act of parliament. The Book of Common Prayer was adopted by an act of parliament. The 39 Articles of Faith in the Anglican Church were an act of parliament. The Archbishop of Canterbury was and still is appointed by the government. Right? The church was run by the government. Um, in the United States, with the Great Awakening, there was revulsion at this idea. Uh, it didn't, and this actually goes back a little bit farther to the Puritans, who, of course, were coming over and partly uh, in reaction to the to the uh, uh, to the established church. But but um, but it's, but Jonathan Edwards, who was the greatest of the theologian preachers of the Great Awakening, extolled the dignity of the church as the eternal city of God. He said that the church should be governed entirely by divine ordinance and is utterly exempt from worldly authority. Uh, the Baptists took this even further. They argued that not only should the church not be subject to the direct control of the state, but that it should not receive state subsidies because this would subject the church to government influence. A memorial in 1776 by the Virginia Association of Baptists against establishment proposal read as follows, if therefore the state provides a support for preachers of the gospel and they receive it in consideration of their services, they must certainly when they preach act as officers of the state and ought to be accountable thereto for their conduct, not only as members of civil society but also as preachers. Thus the problem with support, government support for religion is it will lead to government control, a loss of autonomy of the church. Um, the third argument, very common but a little bit more abstract, uh, is simply that uh, this idea that we would use government, I mean, use religion to promote virtue in the interests of political prosperity was a misuse of the church, is a kind of blasphemy to use the sacred for the purpose of the, uh, of the temporal. Madison put it this way. He said that establishment implies that, quote, the civil magistrate may employ religion as an engine of civil policy. This is an unhallowed perversion of the means of salvation. Right? You don't do that. Uh, and fourth, uh, and finally, uh, uh, people argued that government support for religion was actually weakened religion, that uh, uh, whenever the government gets involved in running something that it doesn't do a very good job, uh, they didn't actually know about the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, uh, but if you like the U.S. Postal Service, you'd love an established church. Uh, David Hume, the British philosopher and historian, uh, thought that enthusiastic religion was a danger to the state, and he therefore was a supporter of the established church in England precisely because he thought it would dampen the enthusiasm of the ministers and make them less dangerous. Uh, Adam Smith has a chapter in his Wealth of Nations about establishment of religion, which makes uh, the, the following argument. Smith wrote, uh, the teachers of religious doctrine may depend altogether for their subsistence upon the voluntary contributions of their hearers, or they may derive it from some other fund to which the law of their country may entitle them. Those are the two choices, voluntary contributions or a fund that the law provides for them. Their exertion, their zeal and industry are likely to be much greater in the former situation than in the latter. In this respect, the teachers of new religions have always had a considerable advantage in attacking those ancient and established systems of which the clergy, I love this, reposing themselves upon their benefices, 
had neglected to keep up the fervor of faith and devotion in the great body of the people. Uh, you know, think about this. You know, which members of the clergy have a greater incentive to bring in new members and get the congregation all excited? Is it the minister who gets a regular stipend from the state? Or is it the minister who depends for his salary on passing the collection plate on Sunday morning? Uh, and so uh, uh, many people argued, therefore, that government support would actually weaken uh, uh, religion. Uh, and uh, the... Uh, and so disestablishment was the um, uh, was basically the policy in, in, in each of the states. Uh, this was uh, risky, though. Please appreciate how risky it was, and that's why it took them so long, really, to come to a conclusion. It's risky because if you really do believe, as everybody did, that republicanism requires an extraordinary degree of public virtue, and if religion is the only plausible, only available means you can think of for promoting public virtue, to leave it alone you know, you're, is a very, uh, it's, a, it's a scary proposition. What you have to realize is that disestablishment was not proposed as a departure from this three-step process. It was a solution to the third step. How can we support religion without hurting it? hurting it by interfering with conscience, destroying the independence of the church, abusing religion, or weakening the incentives, right? The argument was that religion would flourish better if left free. Just as free enterprise is good for the economy, according to Smithian economics, free exercise is good for religion. And the remarkable thing is that it seems to have worked. The United States is still one of the most religious countries in the world, far more so in terms of basic sociological measurements of religious participation than the countries of Europe, which retained their desiccated religious establishments. In the 1830s, Tocqueville was amazed by the high degree of religiosity in the United States. He wrote, and I quote, America is still a place where the Christian religion has kept the greatest real power over men's souls. And nothing better demonstrates how useful and natural it is to man, since the country where it has now the widest sway is also the most enlightened and the freest. And he reported that uh, he explained that, that religion had never doesn't interfere directly in the government of the United States, but it nonetheless should be considered as the quote first of their political institutions. And he says that he went around the country, and as he traveled, he asked clergy of every denomination, why is it that religion is so powerful in the United States? And he said that he got the same answer from everyone, and the answer they gave was the separation of church and state. Now, if this is true, we're left with a very happy, optimistic conclusion. Right? It wasn't necessary to choose between religion public virtue, and disestablishment, you can have all three. Right? Now, I realize that this is a subject of tremendous possible misunderstanding, and I'd like to conclude just by telling you some things that I have not said, do not believe, and hope that you do not take away from this. <laughs> One, I did not say and I do not believe that all religions are good. 
To say that religion should be free and that this will promote civic happiness, political prosperity in Washington's terminology, does not mean that all exercises of that freedom is virtuous or admirable. Any more than a belief in the truth promotion function of free speech means that all speech is true or truthful or good. Looking at American history, religion has sometimes been a force for good. It's sometimes been a force for very great evil. It's a mixed bag just like everything else. But on balance, I do believe that freedom of religion has beneficial civic effects, and that's the point. Second, the second thing that I'm not saying is that I'm not saying that non-religious philosophies are inferior or that they do not contribute to the public good. They do. They're part of us as well. In terms of constitutional doctrine, I personally am, so, am a supporter of a very robust freedom of association, which is the secular equivalent of free exercise and non-establishment for non-religious ideologies and organizations. I have not said and do not believe that there is anything wrong with or inferior about non-religious ways of thinking about and promoting virtue. My point is just that our constitutional tradition, contrary to the conventional wisdom, does not rest upon secularization. It does not depend upon the secular or favor the secular over the religious. That religion has a public and not just a private role to play. And that non-establishment was defended as good for religion, hence good for virtue, and good for, for liberal democracy. Thank you. Uh, Judge McConnell has agreed to uh, take some questions. It's a uh, tradition of the Masson program that we reserve the uh, first opportunity for questions to uh, any students who might have them. So uh, first, let me uh, welcome any, any student questions, and then we'll open it up more generally. Opportunity is not always grasped, however. Yes. You ask a very good question. Um, at the time I've been talking about the founding, roughly the, the late seven, 1770s, 1780s, um, there isn't much to be said about that because there were so few Catholics in the United States. Uh, it is true that there was one Catholic member of the first Congress, uh, uh, Representative Daniel Carroll of Maryland, uh, who participated in the debates over the framing of the of the amendments, and, and he makes one speech in the first Congress in which he, uh, in which he argues for a very robust freedom of conscience. Um, 
the American church then plays a very American Catholic church does then play as it grows larger. Basically, uh, uh, large large numbers of Catholics begin to arrive in this country in the 1820s, and and uh, the number doubles. I think every about every five or ten years for through the 30s and 40s. So you, have, you begin to have a fairly substantial uh, a Catholic population, most of it, but not all of it, uh, Irish, a lot of Germans too. Um, and the uh, American uh, hierarchy uh, played a fairly significant role in discussing the world Catholic policy on this. Uh, but the Catholic Church of the mid-19th century was... Um, how can I say this without sounding pejorative, deeply illiberal, uh, and uh, it condemned uh, separation of church and state as a heresy in the Syllabus of Errors of 1864. Uh, the, the church, to give them their due, uh, and I'm not a Catholic, so I'd like to give them their due. I'm more harsh toward my own. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they were responding, their understanding of liberalism and of new democratic forms was born more of the French Revolution than it was the American experience. And, and it's understandable how, uh, and, and the French Revolution was, you know, thousands of priests were massacred during the French Revolution. Uh, the very, one of the very first things that the revolutionaries did was to seize the properties of the church. It was a, there are reasons why the church found this, move, this kind of French revolutionary style uh, liberalism very troubling. Nonetheless, there, uh, the, uh, the official statements of the church in the mid-19th um, uh, mid century uh, put American Catholics in a very difficult position. The Americanism was condemned as a heresy in, uh, in the syllabus of errors. Uh, uh, both in Britain and in the United States, the uh, clergy tried to perform a function of sort of toning this down and educating the church about the conditions in our countries, but uh, was not, we're not very successful. But this is all way past our founding. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very profound question, and it takes me outside of anything I can remotely claim to be my expertise. Uh, it's, it's my first stab at this is to say that it's, it's not obvious to me that other societies have a whole lot more public virtue than we do. Uh, uh, I'm inclined, you know, drawing on my Calvinist roots to say, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there are none of us righteous, no, not one. Uh, and uh, the reason we don't have more public virtue is that we're mostly of the species of human being. Um, 
But yeah, sure, surely there is something in, to your question. A lot of the anti-federalists thought so. They would have said uh, that the choice, the deliberate choice to create a large commercial republic in the expect, in the full knowledge that this would lead to more luxury, more extravagance, and more inequality, and with a government that's distant from the people and therefore with fewer opportunities for actual popular participation, we just elect our senators, send them off, send them off to the national capital and, uh, and uh, wave as they leave, right? And that's the last thing that we do. That all, from an anti-federalist point of view, this was a very serious uh, defect. And uh, I, what the alternative is is much harder to say, but that that's part of the diagnosis is, strikes me as plausible. Uh, they predicted it, and much of it has come to pass. Um, many of our framers, including you know Jefferson and Adams and, and a number of others, were quite distressed at the at the uh, uh, at the state of our democracy by the early part of the uh, uh, of the nineteenth century, and they were they thought we were uh, uh, you know too commercial. Uh, they thought we were too. Uh, uh, Democratic in the sense of I don't mean, I don't mean politically, but I mean in the sense of lack of uh, of uh, a sense of deference and, and order and everybody think everybody out of their place, right? Uh, uh, and uh, they also a lot of them thought we were too evangelical uh, uh, for uh, for their taste, and uh, and so you know there were some problems. Um, uh, I don't know that anybody else has done much better. That's, that's, I guess, the part of your question that I can't answer is, is there a better system? Uh, Can you open it up more? I broadly? see another student in the back room. Um, did I, just to clarify, did I understand you to say that you have read me to argue that there was no right to, see, um, I'm actually uh, conspicuous for the opposite argument. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I have argued that in the, in both in the state constitutions and in the basic logic of the free exercise clause, that some, that there was some expectation that uh, when there was a clash between dictates of conscience and, and, the, and the law, even generally applicable law, that there was an expectation that sometimes the law rather would, uh, would accommodate conscience rather than the other way around. Uh, and you might, and, and I think this is consistent with the understanding I've laid out of disestablishment, because what they were looking for is a way to make religion strong and enable religion to flourish, but without religion to receive the direct subsidy or control of the government. And it seems to me that this idea that free exercise does have a 
uh, an element of, uh, of leaving religions, religious people alone when you can, right? Not if it's, you know, leading to, you know, terrible consequences. We're not going to let people murder out of religious conscience, but, but on a number of matters that are of lesser moment than that, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, the Continental Congress at the very height of the crisis over raising more troops in the revolution uh, uh, passed a, a law allowing religious exempt, exemptions from the draft and at the same time calling upon the Quakers and Mennonites and others who, uh, who were of that view to provide whatever service they could in conscience for the, uh, for the revolutionary cause. But uh, you know, even at a point of tremendous crisis, uh, our, uh, we did, in fact, make exemptions from generally applicable uh, military conscription laws. Uh, this is almost written into the Second Amendment, by the way. We think of it as the right to keep and bear arms, but by a mere two-vote margin in the uh, House of Representatives, they rejected a, uh, a provision which would have said uh, that provided that no person scrupulous of bearing arms um, may be... Uh, uh, may be required to, to take them up. So we almost had that written into the Second Amendment itself. Um, does that answer your question? Um, I, mean, I see these things as being quite consistent. I, 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 right. He, he, he mentions me in the word not as conspicuously. Uh, <laughs> Um, it, different state constitutions put it in different ways. The most common formulation of this was to re, were, were what I call peace and good order clauses. So uh, the New York Constitution of 1777, for example, uh, uh, guarantees, and I, I don't have it written down in front of me, and so this is a paraphrase, but it, it says essentially that the religious prof profession of, of uh, of all shall not be interfered with unless it be contrary, unless it be repugnant to the peace and safety of the state. Now, peace and safety of the state is a fairly common phrase in common law sources, and you find it in Blackstone and elsewhere. And, and that essentially means um, uh, you, in instances in which you would be using a, you know, force or fraud against other people or, or actually engaging in public disturbance. So, it was a disturbance of, of the peace and safety of the state for me to commit assault and battery, uh, but for things of a lesser moment, uh, maybe we will uh, allow it. So the first case in New York, which didn't come out and didn't come about until I believe it was 1812, uh, uh, involved whether a priest could be required to divulge a secrets that he had learned in the confessional pursuant to a generally applicable law that all citizens, when subpoenaed and having, having information about criminal activity, are required to testify. And the court in New York ruled that its constitution uh, protected the right of the priest not to have to testify uh, to what, uh, what he learned in the confessional because it wasn't essential to the peace and safety of the state to, uh, uh, to do that. In fact, the court said that uh, on balance, 
that the practice of Roman Catholic confession and penitence probably promotes the peace and safety of the state by encouraging uh, people who come and confess to make uh, uh, to make amends for what they do. And in the particular case, uh, the uh, miscreant who had stolen, uh, actually I believe it was the fence, uh, the goods were stolen, I believe it was the fence who was the, who was the, uh, the Catholic who had gone to return the goods to the owner through the priest. And so uh, the argument of the court was this is, a, this is an institution that actually helps public peace and safety rather than, rather than hurting it, and uh, we're not going to in interfere uh, with it. Uh, there was a, a good deal of litigation over uh, Sunday clo uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Sunday closing laws uh, brought by uh, Jewish Americans. They usually lost, uh, uh, in, but uh, for but not on the ground that that uh, there's no right to exemption from generally applicable laws. They generally lost on the ground that they that there's no religious principle within Judaism that requires you to work on Sunday, uh, and uh, they. They were perhaps less sensitive than they might be to the indirect economic pressure of uh, on the Saturday Sabbath practice of being of not being able to open on uh, on Sunday either. But in any event, that tended to be the ground of decision. Yes, Maybe that's why I said it so fast. I was hoping you wouldn't catch it. Well, we're going to give you a chance to slow down. <laughs> uh, it, it was in the discussion of the relationship between uh, the establishment provision of the First Amendment and the state establishment uh, where you observed that Well, you're not the first to make that uh, observation, but here's a response. Uh, um, so the, the original Bill of Rights, the first eight amendments, applied only to the federal government. They didn't apply to the states. The first, first word of the First Amendment is Congress. You know, Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say anything about the state of New Jersey. Uh, the only reason why 
the First Amendment is thought to apply to the states is because of the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment includes the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which states that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States. Um, the Supreme Court actually has relied upon the Due Process Clause, but that's not historically uh, uh, accurate. Uh, you can find so, – so what are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States? Uh, that's a, a very difficult question, and we could do a whole lecture uh, on that if, in fact, if you'd like to stay another hour and a half. Uh, I, I see various sleepy people I don't think want to hear that. Uh, but, it, but at least one of the common answers uh, at the time was that it at least included the, uh, the provisions of the Bill of Rights, the first eight amendments. In fact, I, there's a, a, I can could quote you from one of the debates uh, uh, at the time where a senator is standing there and he's reading from the amendment and he says, and what are these privileges and immunities to which we refer? And he literally just reads the Bill of Rights aloud. And so there's very substantial support for the proposition that the Bill of Rights freedoms are, uh, are privileges and immunities which, which after the 14th Amendment are properly enforced against abridgment by the states. What then do we do with the Establishment Clause, which the language of which is Congress, we don't worry about that anymore, but sh shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And the word respecting was carefully chosen. It doesn't say establishing religion. It's respecting an establishment of religion, which means neither establishing religion nor disestablishing religion where it where it took place. In other words, it's a state's rights provision with respect to establishment. Uh, and as Professor George says, it's logically impossible to incorporate that or enforce it against against the states. Uh, so what could they have meant? Um, I don't think they could have meant nothing. I mean, it doesn't uh, – I mean, it, just to say what's incoherent, full stop, you know, they thought they were doing something. And so here's what I think they thought they were doing, that by 1833, there were no establishments left. Uh, and some state constitutions by that time – I believe Iowa is an example of this uh, – uh, repeated the language of the Federal Bill of Rights in, the own st in their own state constitution. So if I'm correct that it was Iowa, it says, some, it says literally in the Iowa Constitution that there shall be no law respecting an establishment of religion. By a time when there is no establishment, that had come to mean you can't have an establishment of religion. It ceased to have its state's rights connotation, but in the context of state law at least, state constitutional law, it had come to mean no establishment of religion. And it, I think the most plausible of among the various possible interpretations, and it's not perfect, right, but I think the most plausible reading of this is that the framers of the 14th Amendment, when they said establishment, when they list establishment of religion as one of the privileges and immunities, had uh, so thoroughly imbibed the notion that it meant no establishment, that that's what it had come to mean by, uh, uh, by that time. I recognize that there are theoretical difficulties with that, but it still seems to me less fraught with theoretical difficulties than any of the other possible readings. Yes, sir. 
on this on this particular issue, right? As being as being a deist and so forth. Uh, I guess my question is, wasn't Adam Smith also recognized as being one of the Um, Americans at this period are notorious for ransacking the uh, uh, the great writers of Europe in an opportunistic fashion. Uh, it, it, that you quote one of them on one thing does not mean you don't uh, go the other way on something else. Hume, for example, is quoted verbatim without footnote or attribution. Uh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> Their plagiarism rules were a little different back then, but you know he was quoted in the, on the floor of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, people uh, quote passages from Hume without saying where they get them. Hume is a very ma is a major figure, without his name often mentioned, uh, but he's a major figure in the development of this new science of politics. If there's any uh, non-American who uh, uh, who is the uh, founding father of the of the Federalists' new science of politics? It's David Hume, and yet uh, his view on establishment would have been anathema. I couldn't have gotten any support uh, uh, for that among uh, um, among people. Now Smith, my understanding, you may actually uh, you know know much more about this than I. I haven't made a tremendous study of this, but my understanding is that Smith's book. Uh, was very widely distributed in uh, in the United States, and I believe it was translated into something like 16 languages within five years of its publication. It was a book that had an immediate and wide, widespread uh, uh, impact. Uh, a number of the founders are quoting from it. It's obvious that they are influenced by it, but does that mean that on every single point they agreed with it? No, they ransacked it for the arguments that they found persuasive and pertinent. And uh, and didn't uh, elsewhere. Uh, uh, I mean, I think Hamilton is a bit embarrassed in uh, in his letter on the manufacturers because because he realizes that he's arguing against an economist whom he's obviously studied and whom he presumably thinks is a pretty uh, important figure. Now, as to whether the Americans knew that Smith. Uh, that Smith's Presbyterianism was uh, not heartfelt. Uh, I doubt it. Uh, I don't know, but I think modern historians know a lot more about Smith's religious position than he lets on. Uh, in The Wealth of Nations, he sounds as though he's pro-religion, uh, 
and he did, after all, he was not—he did not hold the chair of, econ of economics at the University of Glasgow. He was the professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow, uh, and uh, I, I doubt that they were aware uh, that uh, you know, of the sort of sort of thing that you quote from the from the Hume essay, which, by the way, I haven't seen. My guess is. I can't let a discussion of virtue go without uh, a question from Professor Veroli.
giving warning. This was because of Um. <laughs> uh, are there any other questions? No, no, uh, no, no, uh, uh, thank you for the kind uh, words you began with. Uh, and I, I knew there was, whenever there's a, that much praise for the lecture, the word but is the next word. That, uh, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, the first question is about the claim about virtue and, and uh, Professor Baroli, is it? Um, emphasizes strength and resistance, and I do think that's right, but um, don't forget self-sacrifice uh, and the, will the willingness to give of your time and fortune uh, for, the, for the public good. And that uh, might also have something to do with the second question because uh, uh, the opposite of virtue is, is not just ambition and avarice, it's selfishness, right? And, uh, uh, you know, the Christian religion may be defective from a civil point of view, according to people like Machiavelli and Gibbon, because it teaches humility. Uh, but uh, uh, it's exemplary in its emphasis upon selfishness as being the uh, uh, you know, one of the cardinal uh, vices. Um, and so, you know, why is virtue so important? The the alternative to virtue is is um, is the law, right, of some, some, some degree of force. So Jefferson, who takes the opposite view of this, uh, said, and I quote, that it is time enough for civil purposes to, when, uh, for officers to act when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order. Um, so his idea is leave people alone, don't try to mold character, forget about virtue, and then if people misbehave, punish them, right? Um, there, there, were two, there are two things wrong. I mean, maybe that's right, but, but at least there are two counter-arguments to that. One is that there are many obligations of good citizens that can't be expressed in terms of, of you know, punishable misconduct, right? We, we want people to be generous, we want people to be patriotic. We want them to do, there are a number of things that are, condu are conducive to good citizenship that simply cannot be compelled through, uh, uh, through coercion, what, 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 is often, what are often called incomplete obligations. And, and Jefferson's formulation leaves them unaddressed. And, and the second problem is, is the reliance upon force. 
right? And so the, the, the idea of, a, of republicanism is we are genuinely concerned that people be free. Um, we don't want people to be under a heavy police apparatus. Now, we have gone Jefferson's route in this country for, to, to, a, to a great extent, and we do rely principally upon the law, punishment after the fact, in order to uh, make sure that people behave. We have, what, um, 2 million, 78,000 some odd Americans are behind bars. In 2003, 3.2% of the adult population was either in parole, prison, or jail. Um, there is something troubling about a free society when there are that many people who are not free. Right? And if those are the alternatives, there's something to be said for virtue. Right? Um, now, what religion is conducive is, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm real, almost tempted to, to plead the fifth, but I want to, uh, um, the, uh, there are some Republican, there are probably some religions which seem more Republican than not, and our, our founding was, you know, blessed with the fact that uh, you know, well over 95% of the people were Protestant Christians. Protestantism seems to have a, uh, a historical, sociological, and theoretical connection with, with republicanism. If you look at the places through the world in which republican government has come about uh, at earliest, uh, the Protestant nations of Northern Europe and, of course, the United States, uh, uh, you know, are, are high on the list. That's for a variety of reasons. One of them is that if you believe that you have a duty to God to be able to, to search the scriptures, to read the Bible for yourself, um, that means that you're going to learn how to read. And um, reading is very conducive to republicanism. Uh, that in 17th century Massachusetts, which was a subsistence economy, I mean, a really poor economy and a primitive place, had, I understand, the highest literacy rate in the entire world. The other places with high liter literacy rates were Scotland, where the Presbyterians held sway, and which was also a very poor country, the Netherlands, where the Dutch Reformed Church held sway, and Sweden, where the Lutherans held sway. So um, literacy and Protestantism seem to come together. Another thing about Protestantism is that by believing that every person, that believing in the priesthood of all believers, that everyone has an equal right to read and, and discern the will of God, you know, not bishops, right, not hierarchies, but each person and, and, and then to deliberate as communities, as equals within communities, uh, because actually, you know, Puritanism and the Puritan form of, of, of uh, Protestant religion was not individualistic. The idea was not that I can read the Bible for myself because I am sinful and likely to go astray. The idea was that I have an equal ability with everybody else, and then we deliberate together. And it's the judgment of the community based upon an equality of participation 
that leads to uh, that's the most reliable way of discerning the, the will of God. Well, that looks an awful lot like republicanism, right? Where equal citizens deliberate together, and the, the community will about the, the common good is uh, is uh, uh, is uh, uh, dominant. And so, you know, my candidate is Protestant Christianity, but note that the elements of Protestant I could talk about some others too, but the, note, the, the elements of Protestant Christianity to which I mentioned are not the central elements from the point of view of the faith. Right? I have not mentioned redemption and salvation through, uh, uh, through, through faith in Jesus Christ. The words, until then, did not come out of my mouth. Right? It is possible to be a Protestant in the important ways that I've been talking about without necessarily even being a Christian. Right. Um, and and I, know Protest, I know Protestant Catholics. Yes, but the possible, would you agree to the proposition, proposition that it's also possible to be a Christian without being a Protestant? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you can also be a good Republican without being a Protestant, in that sense. Yeah, go ahead. I guess I, I can't say that that's wrong, but I'm, I'm wondering whether we would want to count the, um, the medieval uh, and, and, and early modern Italian republics as liberal republics. And, well, uh, I, uh, I mean, the, the genius of our founding, and I, by that I don't mean that they're really smart, I mean the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the essential character uh, of our founding, I think, was was to was to have a liberal republic. That is to say, a free society in which we're free, not just in the political sense of of uh, of being able to exercise the liberty of participating in government, but we're free in a somewhat more profound sense, uh, or in a more individualistic sense than that, of which freedom of conscience is, I think, number one uh, in in the pantheon. Now, you did ask a third question too, which is how to promote. And uh, to that, I can only sort of repeat the lecture. The problem is that when you do, when government deliberately tries to support, it kills. It's it's not a good. It doesn't work. Direct support for religion doesn't work. As you said, I mean, the religion comes from other sources. I think the best thing that the government can do is stay out of the way, and uh, that's um, I think basically what our First Amendment is designed. Uh, to do, but my point of my lecture is that many people, I think, today mistake the First Amendment with its policy of staying away in the interest of a robust, flourishing religious sphere with public impact for an anti-religious policy 
of, uh, of secularization. And uh, I don't see it in the founding. Well, the hour is getting late, and while Judge McConnell might get a second wind if we asked him to lecture on the privileges and immunities <laughs> laws, I, I don't think we should press our luck on that. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Vaughn would agree that, that the lecture series has gotten off to a tremendous start uh, with our speaker today, and I hope you will join me again in thanking him uh, for speaking. With us.